This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live and another in our series called Free to State. Our focus today, the misinformation explosion. We kick things off with the chair of the House Intelligence Committee and the lead impeachment manager in Donald Trump's first impeachment, Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat from California. Chairman Schiff, thanks for coming back to Washington Post Live. Great to be with you, Jonathan. So I want to start with the, the news that has just happened uh, moments ago. Congressman, Republican Congressman Paul Gosar, officially censured by the House of Representatives by a vote of 223 to 207. Um, Shirley, you, you cast a vote. Why do you think it was important for, for the House of Representatives to make this kind of statement? Well, the glorification of violence against colleagues uh, or the president uh, really has to has to stop. Uh, we've seen where that leads. Uh, we've had a bloody attack on the Capitol, um, and tragically, you know, the promulgation of the big lie about our election, uh, the idea that we can't rely on our elections uh, anymore to decide who should govern, uh, is an invitation to violence, uh, and it's got to stop. Uh, and so, when we have a colleague in Congress. Uh, who, who essentially uh, espouses uh, through video or in other ways, uh, glorifies violence against uh, another member of Congress or against the president. Uh, the Congress needs to speak out in any other workplace in America. They would be gone. Uh, so uh, I consider a censure really the, the least of what we could do here. Mm -hmm. uh, overall, um, the, the topic of misinformation and the impact of misinformation, particularly on our democracy, is it right to think of the misinformation explosion as a, as a threat to our democracy? Absolutely, and this has several different facets to it. I think among the most destructive features of the four years of the Trump administration was this relentless assault on the truth. Uh, the idea that everybody's entitled to their own alternate facts, uh, or as Giuliani said, truth isn't truth, um, but these relentless falsehoods propagated by these amplifiers on Fox primetime or Newsmax or OAN, uh, they're enormously destructive to any democracy. The idea that we no longer have a shared experience uh, makes it impossible to govern. Uh, and now online, uh, you have the ability to live in an alternate factual world, non-factual world, in fact. Um, and that's dangerous. Uh, it has meant that millions of people uh, believe the vaccines aren't safe when they are. Um, hundreds or thousands of people gather for the reemergence of JFK and Junior in Dallas. Yeah. Uh, others uh, take matters into their own hands and go to a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. with a rifle. Um, so this proliferation of misinformation uh, is deeply destructive of our democracy and just plain dangerous. Mm -hmm. So then, uh, Chairman, what can we do about it? Is there anything a free society, and particularly a free society like ours that values free speech, is there anything that we can really do about it? There are things that we can do about it. Uh, and, you know, probably one of the, the most um, clear answers, I think, is to try to crack down 
on the proliferation of dangerous misinformation online, um, which uh, begins with using the bully pulpit uh, to call on these social media companies to be better corporate citizens. If that is unsuccessful, and thus far it has been, uh, it means the, the change or repeal of the immunity that these companies enjoy. They were given immunity when they were nascent industries to try to encourage innovation within the industry and also to encourage them to moderate their content, to be able to enforce policies uh, against uh, dangerous, divisive, hateful rhetoric on their platforms. But instead of using that immunity to protect themselves when they took action against dangerous content, they've used it as a shield uh, to say, we don't have an obligation to remove dangerous content, uh, or we don't want to devote the resources to it, or we're going to keep amplifying for engagement, which is another way of saying amplify for anger and vitriol and bile. Uh, and if these companies are not going to be good corporate citizens, then they shouldn't enjoy that kind of immunity. Um, so that's one step that we can take. Uh, it's by no means the whole answer. It doesn't, for example, address the problem of people uh, on Fox primetime who are espousing authoritarianism now, uh, or others that are pushing out you know, the same big lie about our uh, last election. That is a much more difficult problem to deal with. So th this immunity that you're talking about is also known as Section 230, which is something that was talked about a lot at the end of the last election and um, into this year. Uh, so in listening to you, am I right in thinking that that law, that Section 230, is the biggest obstacle to do to uh, addressing uh, the misinformation explosion we're talking about here? I don't know if it's the biggest obstacle, but it is one that you can remediate through the law. Um, for some of these problems, there's no answer, uh, you know, to the fact that uh, um, some of the leading voices on Fox uh, in primetime hours um, deliver basically hate and division and dishonest uh, commentary every night. There's not much that can be done about that. I know many uh, people ask, why can't we bring back the fairness doctrine that requires um, fairness and uh, equal attention to both sides of an issue? Uh, and the reason we can't bring that back on cable news is because that was enforced through the fact that the public owns the broadcast airwaves and can insist on fairness along those public airwaves. But private cable uh, providers uh, can provide their own content uh, without having to uh, adhere to a fairness doctrine. So that's much more difficult, but we can remove or we can limit uh, the, the immunity that we give social media companies. And most people now get their information from social media, so it could have a very big impact. Um, but among the doable things, that is the most doable. Do you think we need a more defined federal strategy to combat misinformation. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe the president, President Biden should appoint a task force or, or a czar uh, um, uh, or some kind of digital agency to lead the federal response. Would that make sense? I'm not sure. I, I think that there should be certainly, you know, a task force kind of approach to particular kinds of misinformation. Uh, there, there ought to be, for example, you know, concerted effort to push back against vaccine misinformation online uh, and a comprehensive strategy to deal with that. I would love to see, for example, the, the Department of Health and Human Services do a national ad campaign on vaccines uh, with people from each state uh, in, the, in the accents of each state 
uh, telling stories like we've heard before that you can find in every state of the, the woman who is now uh, a, a widow uh, raising three children whose last text message from her husband in the hospital was, I should have gotten the damn vaccine. Uh, these are powerful stories that need to be told, I think, around the country and that can push back vigorously against vaccine misinformation. Um, and there may be other, you know, needed task forces in other substantive areas. But in terms of one broad task force to push back against the problem as a whole, I, I don't know if that's a, a doable construct. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that we ought, we ought to be thinking about um, uh, different subject matter, uh, as I indicated, but also the problem with social media. You know, let me get your opinion on something. Um, in, in the Atlantic magazine, um, the issue is dated September 27th. The headline is the largest autocracy on Earth. Facebook is acting like a hostile foreign power. It's time we treated it that way. It's by uh, Adrienne LaFrance. Um, and I applaud her for this because I've been thinking about this very thing for months now. And the key paragraph is this. And I love your, I'm going to read this to you because I'd love your reaction. Some of Facebook's most vocal critics push for antitrust regulation, the unwinding of its acquisitions, anything that might slow its snowballing power. But if you think about Facebook as a nation state, an entity engaged in a cold war with the United States and other democracies, you'll see that it requires a civil defense strategy as much as regulation from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Is that not a far a far-fetched thing to maybe think about that Facebook isn't just a company it is a it is a nation state that should be treated as such I read that piece and, and I thought it was very provocative uh, and also raises a lot of important points that's probably not how I would characterize Facebook uh, they certainly do have the power of many nation states so that part is is more than accurate and I think that they have used that power. Uh, in ways that uh, can be very harmful and have been harmful. Um, but I, I think the answer, rather than uh, trying to visualize them and respond to them as if we were responding to uh, Russia or China or Iran or North Korea, uh, is rather to, to take a multi-pronged approach that says, number one, we need more transparency about what's going on with the, within these social platforms, uh, what impact it's having on, on, on the public in innumerable ways. Uh, on the self-image of teenage girls, on the, uh, you know, the growing bitterness and division among Americans, um, what degree the, these platforms are being abused by foreign powers to amplify falsehoods like that about the big lie about our election. So we need more transparency. I think we need protection of people's private data uh, so that these companies can't manipulate us uh, because they know everything about us. Um, and I also think that uh, there needs to be um, a, an attack on this immunity uh, from being uh, responsible uh, corporate citizens. So I, I think that's the kind of three-prong approach I would take, which is probably a different approach than would be recommended if we viewed them like they were Russia. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about your book. Uh, the name of the book is Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. And if you look at the rise of populism and Trumpism through the lens of the discussion and some of the issues we've been having uh, today, how did this happen, the, the erosion of our democracy? And, and, and you write, the story of how good people were persuaded to abandon their beliefs and ideology, their dedication to something larger than themselves is the one I wish to tell. How did good people get persuaded to 
abandon their beliefs? Well, this is really the reason I wrote uh, Midnight in Washington, and that is there have been a lot written about what happened within the Trump White House, uh, but very little had been written about what happened in Congress, uh, why it is that the Republican Party leadership and membership uh, came to allow itself to be so badly used by someone of such clearly um, low ethics and morals, someone so fundamentally dishonest. And the, the answer is not surprisingly one day at a time, one small lie followed by a bigger lie, one small act of immorality followed by a bigger act of immorality. And so people were so vested uh, in that immorality that there was no turning back. Uh, I watched people that I admired and respected because I believed that they believed what they were saying. Um, to not believe it at all, or if they did believe it, none of it was as important as maintaining their own position or their future ambition. Uh, and in the book, I give examples uh, of how my relationship changed with Devin Nunes, uh, of what motivates Kevin McCarthy or Jim Jordan or any of these people. Um, I also, and, and this is, I think, equally important, uh, reveal some of the heroes uh, that have emerged in this time. People have shown themselves to be of great character uh, who refuse to be part of the president's immorality and lies. Uh, and those stories are essential too, because those are the ones uh, the examples that we need to follow. You know, and one of those stories you tell about House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is about a conversation the two of you had, and then he, private conversation that he then goes out and publicly recounts, but recounts it falsely. And, um, and what that showed you about his character, I'm gonna fast forward to today and the, the House censure vote um, against uh, Congressman Paul Gosar, are you surprised that the Kevin McCarthy you have come to know stayed silent for was like six to eight days after the 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 anime video that Congressman Gosar put out that led to his censure today? No, I'm not surprised at all. I would have been surprised if Kevin McCarthy did otherwise. Uh, that, that conversation that you mentioned that I recount in the book that took place on an airplane when we were flying back to Washington, that was 10 years ago. Um, and when we got to DC, he went and did a press conference um, and told the press the exact opposite of what I had said. Uh, and when I confronted him on the House floor the next morning, uh, this was what was so telling. Uh, I said, Kevin, if we were having a private conversation on the plane, I would have thought it was a private conversation. But if it wasn't, you know, I said the exact opposite of what you told the press. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. Um, and I said, no, Kevin, I don't know how it goes. You just make expletive up and that's how you operate because that's not how I operate. But that is how he operates. Uh, and someone who operates in that way is never gonna insist on ethics among his members. Uh, indeed, Kevin McCarthy is never going to say no to Donald Trump which is why it would be so dangerous to allow him to have a position of responsibility uh, in the House. So can't say I'm surprised. Uh, can't say I'm surprised that even after the bloody insurrection, uh, it was only a matter of, uh, I think, two weeks before he was, uh, or maybe even less days before he was down in Mar-a-Lago kissing the ring, because there's only one thing that matters to Ken McCarthy, and that is obtaining power and keeping it. Um, decency, morality, truthfulness, none of that makes any difference to him. Well, let's talk about Donald Trump because you write that you never dreamt 
Trump would would receive his party's nomination, that it humbled you. And, and you were shocked by how quickly Republicans succumbed to the allure uh, of Donald Trump's influence and demands. So given all of that, what did Trump's election and more importantly, his presidency reveal to you about America, about our country? Well, that's a really good question because one of the themes in the book is um, something Robert Carroll, the historian, once said in an interview that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it says a lot about who we are. Um, power of the last four years revealed a lot of the people that I work with not to believe in anything as they said they believed in. But as you, as you indicate, it also revealed a lot about the country. Um, and on January 6th, uh, as these insurrectionists were attacking Capitol Police and gouging them and bear spraying them, uh, and, and I was on the House floor at the time and they were battering the walls and breaking the windows to get in. Um, and I would later see these images of people parading through the, the Capitol uh, with Confederate flags and Auschwitz t-shirts. It also revealed um, that this insurrection uh, was not uh, a Trumpist insurrection alone. It was also a white nationalist insurrection, a insurrection of bigotry. Um, and in that respect, what Donald Trump revealed uh, by, by giving license to people to openly display that kind of bigotry is that it was not far from the surface, never far from the surface. And indeed, one of the most distressing parts of that terrible day for me, of which there were so many distressing parts, was that the road back for us would be so hard and so long because uh, what was motivating a, a large part of this was uh, this um, appeal to people's worst instincts uh, and an appeal that resonated with all too many Americans. And is that why you warn that the insurrection was or was not and is not the last gasp of Trumpism, that we could see a January 6th again, maybe either at the Capitol or, or elsewhere in the country? It is. Uh, and, and frankly, though, my concern is less about another attack on the Capitol, although that is certainly very possible. If there's an attack on the Capitol again, it will be put down just like the last one was. But what concerns me more is the lesson they apparently learned from the failed insurrection is that the next time, um, if they couldn't find a Secretary of State in Georgia to come up with 11,780 votes that don't exist, they seem determined to have someone in that position next time who will. Uh, they are going around the country stripping independent elections officials of their duties, giving them over to partisan boards and legislatures. They are literally running out of town with death threats. These small local uh, elections officials um, and, uh, and, and preparing the ground to overturn the next failed Republican campaign. Uh, and that is a grave danger uh, to our democracy. Uh, Chairman Schiff, you're also a member of the January 6th Select Committee. Um, what is the path forward on getting former Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to, to comply with the subpoena? Well, we are discussing that now. Um, and as you know, we pursued a criminal contempt um, of Steve Bannon. Uh, and I'm very uh, proud that the Justice Department 
uh, took that case to the grand jury and that the grand jury uh, indicted as it should. Um, we're discussing uh, whether we will take the same course uh, with Mark Meadows. I, I uh, will await uh, the chairman and our committee's decision before making any pronouncement about that. But we are determined to use whatever uh, means we need to to be able to tell the country the full story of what led to that terrible attack, uh, what the former president's role was, what his chief of staff's role was, uh, what the role of white nationalist groups uh, were, um, what we can do and must do to protect the country going forward, where we will follow the evidence wherever it leads. Uh, and so uh, people can be assured on a very bipartisan, nonpartisan basis, we will use whatever tools we have to compel answers. In the two batches of subpoenas that the committee um, put out last week, I plotted them all out uh, on a calendar, basically from November 29th through December 15th, with the exception of a couple days. Um, on each one of those days, work days, a person is due to show up before the committee to give a deposition. And my question to you is going back to something you told Kara Swisher in a recent interview where you said, quote, nothing and no one is off the table. And so should we expect one Donald J. Trump to be added to that calendar as someone who has been um, issued a subpoena and compelled to show up to give testimony for deposition before the January 6th Select Committee? We certainly have not ruled that out. Um, and what we are doing is, I think, methodically going through witnesses uh, in the order that we think, think uh, makes most investigative sense. Uh, you would generally not begin an investigation by interviewing uh, someone who may be the most important witness. Um, and so I'm not prepared to make any announcements for the committee uh, regarding the former president, uh, but we are quite determined uh, to bring in anyone that we think has relevant information uh, where we think would be productive to do so. Uh, and, and so, um, We'll have to just wait uh, until we get to that point in the investigation uh, and cross that bridge when we get to it. Chairman Schiff, I got time for just one more quick question, and that is this. Speaker Pelosi says Democrats aren't leaving town, uh, leaving Washington for Thanksgiving without passing the Build Back Better Act. Are you optimistic that the Build Back Better Act can get done by that deadline by the House? I am. Uh, I think we'll get it done uh, within the next couple of days. And we really need to. Uh, it's enormously important in its own right to uh, help the American people, to invest in the American people, to help seniors with their hearing, help parents with child care, to help parents with early childhood education for their kids, uh, and about a thousand other things. Um, but it's also important uh, in light of the topic we've been discussing, which is uh, a democracy has to show that it can deliver. Um, and so does this democracy. So it's important as part of the democracy agenda. Uh, finally, uh, you know, I would just say uh, I, I titled the book Midnight in Washington because midnight is the darkest hour of every day everywhere in the world. But it's also an optimistic time because you know that what follows uh, is filled with light. Uh, and I do want to underscore because this has been such a traumatic time for people. We are going to get through this. I have every confidence we're going to get through this. But what we do right now will determine how quickly we get through it uh, and how much damage we're forced to suffer along the way. So we all have a role to play right now in the protection of our democracy. Congressman Adam Schiff, chair of the House Intel Committee, former lead impeachment manager for Donald Trump's first impeachment. 
member of the January 6th Select Committee. Uh, thank you very, very much for coming back to Washington Post Live. Thank you. Great to be with you. Great to see you again. You too. I'll be back in a few minutes with our next guest, Katie Harbath. Stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good afternoon, and thanks for joining Free to State. I'm John Sands, Senior Director of Media and Democracy at the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. Knight believes that our democracy thrives when communities are informed and engaged. So we're proud to sponsor this event focused on one of the most important challenges we face today, the viral spread of mis and disinformation. Mis and disinformation are not new phenomena, but they're especially worrisome today. Historically, we relied on and built legal structures to empower institutions and gatekeepers that source, verify, and publish civic information and prevent the amplification of falsehoods. Those intermediaries were conceived in an analog world hardly recognizable today, when anyone with an internet connection can now bypass them and connect with the entire world instantly. We now find ourselves in a digital political economy shaped by mis and disinformation at the societal scale, where bad actors manipulate the information system to undermine democracy and the fragile trust that holds communities together. A Knight Gallup poll from this summer found that 88% of Americans, including bipartisan majorities, are concerned about the spread of misinformation online, an indication of the need for solutions. So while mis and disinformation are not new, the urgency around them is especially acute today, and the legal and policy tools we have to confront them are lagging. To explore this evolving landscape, I'm joined by Jamil Jaffer, the Executive Director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University and a member of the Aspen Commission on Information Disorder. Jamil, so good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, John. Good to be here. So uh, we brought you here because you're a lawyer, because you're a legal expert. Um, and so from a legal perspective, what makes misinformation such a thorny challenge to address? Well, I mean, I think maybe the most um, the most important obstacle to government regulation of misinformation is the First Amendment. Uh, the First Amendment, as a general matter, uh, prohibits the government from punishing speakers simply because what they say is untrue. Uh, and that makes regulation of misinformation difficult. Um, now, I think that there are very good reasons why the First Amendment makes that kind of regulation difficult. One of them is that uh, if the government had the power to decide what was true and what was false and to punish speakers simply for saying things that were untrue, the government might sometimes get things wrong. Uh, it might end up suppressing truth inadvertently. Uh, it might also end up suppressing truth intentionally. And if you look around the world, there are all kinds of examples of this. Uh, of authoritarian or authoritarian leaning regimes using fake news laws to uh, suppress dissent. Uh, and then I think even more fundamentally, um, in a free society or an open society, it's crucial that individuals have the right to decide for themselves what's true and what's false and what ideas are worth listening to. Uh, and if you're going to have a society that recognizes that kind of freedom, sometimes people are going to get things wrong. Uh, so misinformation is, uh, you know, a difficult thing to regulate, and uh, you know the only way really to stamp it out altogether would be to transform ourselves into the kind of society that we don't want to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
we, we seem to have struck a, a strange balance, a status quo that basically allows tech companies to decide what content to host or not, what speech to host or not. And that's an approach that balances the First Amendment rights of those companies themselves, while also upholding the democratic value of free speech for citizens in the digital public sphere today. So the in, individual, um, you know, individual um, individual's ability to, to to speak freely. Is this tenable going forward, this this balance that we've struck? And, and, and are there some ideas you think that would help mitigate misinformation while also preserving this balance? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that this is a, you know, this is a basic point, but a really important one. The First Amendment uh, binds the government. It doesn't bind private actors. And so private actors like news organizations and social media companies uh, can act in ways that the government can't. They can, for example, label misinformation as misinformation, uh, or they can refuse to give platforms to people who spread information, uh, or they can refuse to amplify misinformation. So there are all sorts of things that private actors can do, uh, even if the government's hands are, um, are, are tied, or at least tied, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I imagine that that there are, uh, you know, um, interventions that private companies could take that that uh, that surfaced as as potential paths forward in, in your recent work with the Aspen Commission. Are there other recommendations from from that work um, that you would that you would lift up today to help that you think would help strengthen the integrity of our information ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think one of the most important things about the Aspen report is that it does not recommend uh, government, uh, uh, sort of direct government regulation of misinformation. In, instead, uh, it puts most of its energy behind structural intervention. Uh, and the kinds of structural interventions that uh, I personally am most enthusiastic about are the ones that relate to platform transparency. So the Aspen report recommends, for example, that Congress pass an ad transparency mandate that would require the companies to disclose more information about how ads are targeted, uh, what the contents of the ads are, uh, and that would allow researchers and the public to understand better how misinformation travels online. Uh, another recommendation in the report uh, has to do with uh, requiring the platforms to share more information with researchers in particular. Uh, right now, researchers get only what the platforms want to want to share with them, uh, and you know that effectively turns the platforms into gatekeepers of uh, uh, of research. They can decide which research projects go forward and which ones don't, uh, and that seems untenable to me. There are other proposals too in the in the Aspen report that are uh, of that structural nature, uh, rather than uh, you know proposals for direct government in intervention in the marketplace of ideas. And I, I think that those are that's the right way to go forward. Great. So there's there's uh, seems like you know consent, some consensus options are now beginning to uh, to emerge and present themselves in ways that that uh, may be actionable. Jamil Jaffer, uh, thanks so much for your insights. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. To continue our conversation about the misinformation explosion, I'm joined by Katie Harbath, a former public policy official at Facebook and a current fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center and Integrity Institute. Katie, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks for having me. So this week, the Aspen Institute's Commission on Information, Information Disorder recommended that the White House develop a robust plan on misinformation now. Uh, what should President Biden do? 
I think there's a couple of different things that I would really like to see the White House uh, do, both at the domestic and the international level. I think at the domestic level, really putting together a comprehensive strategy, not only about what the federal government can do and really building upon the great work that Chris Krebs and the folks at CISA did in 2020, but also empowering the states and making sure states and election officials in the states have the funding that they need to accurately um, uh, conduct elections and make sure people have accurate information. And then internationally, I think with their Summit of Democracies coming up, there needs to be a lot of pressure and consideration put on how do we deal with countries that are passing laws under the guise of trying to protect uh, false information, but really are laws that might actually suppress minority and opposition voices. And I think it's an area that, frankly, um, America and the Biden administration could really lead a lot more on. Um, so does that mean that the, the United States, this is the same question I ask uh, Chairman Schiff, does that mean that the United States needs a, a, a task force or a czar or a digital agency to, to lead the federal response on misinformation? I, whatever form it would take, I do think that they need somebody who is sort of able to look at this strategically and try to organize this across all the many different agencies, civil society groups, tech companies, et cetera, that need to be a part of this solution. And I think it, that's really hard to do if you keep it very decentralized versus having somebody that can really help to uh, put all of the parts together and try to get them moving in the same direction. We don't have a lot of time before the primaries start here in 2022. There's a ton of elections coming up internationally. And so they really need to do something to help move incredibly quickly. Mm -hmm. So the commission also is calling on Congress to pass laws that would make platforms like Facebook and YouTube more transparent about how they police misinformation. You worked at Facebook for a decade. How did Facebook police misinformation? There were a lot of different levers that the company took when looking at misinformation. And this is one of the things when we talk about misinformation and combating it, I think is really important. There's not just the policies around it and what the rules are around misinformation. There's also how you execute on those policies. There's a great group of fact checkers that Facebook works with to try to fact check information that has its challenges in terms of how quickly they can turn around those fact checks. There's product interventions that we've been hearing a lot more about since Frances Haugen came forth with her documents and some of the folks on the civic integrity team have worked on that can be considered around how to even prevent or dissuade people from posting mis or disinformation in the first place. To give you an example, some of the political and issue ad transparency work that the company um, implemented that I was a big part of starting in 2018 really did a lot to dissuade foreign actors uh, from running any sort of political ads in our elections compared to what they had done in 2016. And then I think we also have to look at the effectiveness that these companies are in terms of enforcing these rules and, and looking at them. And so I would really encourage, I 100% agree about more transparency, but I think we should also be really clear and dig into the details a little bit more about what that means and how effective these companies are in terms of actually combating mis and disinformation. Okay, I've got to get your reaction. Um, and I asked uh, also Chairman Schiff the same question, but it's a fascinating, fascinating idea. It's still sticking to Facebook. This is a, the, the piece in the Atlantic called the largest autocracy on earth. 
Facebook is acting like a hostile foreign power. It's time we treated it that way. And Adrian LaFrance, who wrote the piece, basically says um, that uh, if you think about Facebook as a nation state, an entity engaged in a cold war with the United States and other democracies, you'll see that it requires a civil defense strategy as much as regulation from the Securities and Exchange Commission. I would love your view on, on that argument. I, I don't agree that it's a hostile nation state, but I think what she is really getting at is a lot of the tensions that we really need to acknowledge when looking at a company like Facebook. First, most of the user base is outside the United States, yet they are based here in the States as a, as a company. And so a corporation you know, needs to take a global approach when looking at many of their rules and laws and, and regulations. And I think that that is something that the debate here in the States hasn't really fully acknowledged and looked at and, and recognized in terms of um, how these companies are, are actually operating. The second thing I would say about that is I think too that for too long, and I'm gonna go into corporate speak here a little bit, even though I don't work at Facebook anymore, but I agree with this that they really, we can't expect these corporations to make all these decisions themselves. They clearly don't want to. And so we do need government and civil society to help to help um, provide some of the guardrails and rules um, around all this that works on, that, that they are working on. But the companies also need to come at this in good faith. Um, I think that they do need to be more transparent about how they, what they are prioritizing in terms of making decisions, where they are putting their resources, what their rules are around fighting and combating misinformation. Right now, I worry too much that it is this is a very adversarial relationship between Facebook and, and, and the government. And I would really like to hopefully see a little bit more cooperation coming from both sides of trying to find solutions uh, to these issues. Um, obviously, one of the, the solutions that's been talked about is repeal of Section 230. Is that, is that the remedy that makes the most sense? Not in my mind, it doesn't, because for me, um, a repeal of Section 230, I think, is actually going to cause more content to come down than stay up because companies are going to be ultra careful and they are going to end up uh, removing more and probably inhibiting uh, the speech of many, many different people and groups in society. Now, I think that one of the things that is worth looking at, and I think that policymakers can actually take a bit more into account is there are a lot of things these companies have done already to try to think about um, you know, protecting people from harmful content. They really struggle, obviously, with drawing the lines between what is freedom of speech versus what is harming people. And some of those things and interventions could potentially be looked at a bit more, hopefully if the companies would release a bit more of their research and understanding to help us to get a sense of where we should draw these lines and where should there be liability. I actually found it kind of interesting in the Aspen report that they mentioned liability just for paid advertisements. I want to look, think about that one a little bit more because I had not necessarily seen that type of carve out. And that could be the first step in seeing what that could even look like then for organic content as well. So then Kate, what is the responsibility of the consumer? I mean, how do we better promote and educate people about media literacy in the effort to combat misinformation. Yeah, I think this is something that needs to happen at, at all ages, whether that, you know, people are at retirement age or they're just getting online right now of really understanding how to be more 
discerning consumers of the information that they are getting online, of, of checking things and learning to check things like the dates or where pictures are coming from. Some of the platforms have built in tools to help people to do this a bit more. Um, and I think we also have to remember too that most of these platforms start with people making a choice of what they choose to follow and the types of content they wanna see. And then the algorithms come in to decide of that content what they see in the newsfeed and then based on that what they should be recommended and so there's this real interesting tension between uh where people have their own personal choice and where companies are making choice for them and we need to find that right balance and i wouldn't mind seeing a bit more of people having more choice around how they want their content to be sorted so they at least know and understand what the criteria are that are that are being used in terms of determining what is in their newsfeed you know, you said the word algorithms, and since this is um, being done in partnership with the Knight Foundation, I would be remiss if I did not mention that one of the most profound statements said to me about algorithms came from the president of the John L. Knight Foundation, uh, Alberto Ibarguen, on my podcast five years ago, where he said, you know, Jonathan, algorithms have parents. Uh, and this was about a whole other conversation about how uh, biases and other things can work their way into those algorithms. So I just had to put that out there. So Katie, what's at stake if we don't control this misinformation explosion? I am in particularly worried about 2024 because it's gonna be a year where we're not only gonna have the US presidential election, but elections in India, Indonesia, Ukraine, Taiwan, Mexico, the United Kingdom, and the European Parliament all in the same year. And that's never happened before. Next year, we have elections in Brazil and the Philippines, France, including the United States midterms. We are entering a very chaotic time in the world for elections and for democracy. And I worry that if we do not speed up our action, if we do not start thinking a little bit more long-term about what are the um, products, the interventions, the partnerships that need to be in place now to be ready, you know, the primaries for 2022 start here in March, you know, March, May of next year. That's not very far off. And then as soon as that midterm is done, we go into that presidential election. And so time is of the absolute essence to make sure that we are continuing to look forward and be not just fighting the last uh, set of problems of which there were many that we had, but looking forward to making sure we're anticipating the next set. Are, are those other nations that are having those elections that you mentioned, uh, I, I recall Ukraine, Taiwan, India, Mexico, are those other nations farther along than the United States in grappling with and addressing mis the misinformation explosion? I mean, the European Parliament and the UK are probably the furthest along that I would say. The UK has an online safety bill that they're pretty close to passing. Same thing in Europe with the Digital Services Act and Digital Marketing Act. And so I would say they are ones that uh, many people are looking towards. Some of those other countries, unfortunately, if you look at the most recent Freedom House report and Freedom on the Net, have actually passed some laws that are more problematic. And that goes to back to some of my points around the Biden administration and the international community doing a bit more to put pressure and be a check on some of those countries who, where you may have governments who are actually looking to use regulation to suppress opposition and minority voices. Um, um, what gives you optimism, last question, what gives you optimism in this, in this fight against misinformation? Is there anything? 
I think there is. I think there's still there's still a lot of great um, things that the internet has enabled when it comes to civic engagement and how, in terms of how it's allowed uh, challengers who may have never been able to come up against incumbents, how it's allowed advocacy groups and other movements um, to grow, how it's enabled, you know, uh, members of Congress or, you know, elected officials to engage with their constituents. While that may not always be what we want, I still think that that's that that's a good thing. And while we're going through this period of what I call reckoning right now after a decade of the utopian vision of the internet, I really do think that I am really glad that we're having these conversations out in the open to determine what our new societal norms need to be about how we want people to conduct themselves online. And I do think we can get to a point where we are mitigating the harms, but amplifying the good. This has been a great conversation and you've given me a, a lot and everyone watching a lot to think about. Uh, and before before I let you go, I want to say this in your presence. I misspoke when I said the actual name of the Knight Foundation. It is the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, commonly known as the Knight Foundation. Katie Harbath, we are out of time, but I really thank you very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.